Hello and welcome. This is Sizel Presents, a language and literacy podcast. We are the Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Language and Literacy at Northern Illinois University. I am Emma Apicella, graduate assistant to Sizel, and we are joined today by our co-host, Dr. Miliana Buach. Miliana Buach is an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University. Her research interests include neurotypical and neurodivergent bilingual language development with a focus on environmental factors, cognitive development in bilingual children with and without developmental disabilities, and evidence-based bias-free assessment and intervention approaches for children from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. We are joined today by Dr. Jennifer Crisman. Jennifer Crisman is a research associate professor at Northwestern University. She studies how biology and experience influence the auditory, cognitive, and linguistic processes listeners engage to understand speech in everyday settings. To study this, she uses the frequency following response, an objective electrophysiological measure of auditory processing, together with behavioral assessments of executive language and listening abilities. Her work focuses on how language experience, such as the number of languages a person speaks, influences speech and understanding. The aim of her research is to improve human communication. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Emma, and thank you, Jen, for being here today. Welcome to NIU. Um, Thank you for spending the afternoon with us and for sharing your research. So why don't we go ahead and get started with the first question of just tell us more about your research and the area that you study. Sure. So we study a brain measure called the frequency following response. And what we're interested in looking at is how experience or biology might shape our auditory system. So how our life and sound influences how we interact with the auditory world. Great. That is fascinating and very important work. Can you tell us more about the research methodology or the techniques that you use to collect your data? So the frequency following response, which we call the FFR, is a passively evoked response. And so we can get it by just putting a couple of electrodes on the participant's head and playing a sound to their ear. And while we're doing that, the participant will just watch a movie or take a nap, whatever they want to do. And we get this response back that looks a lot like the stimulus that evoked it. And so we can do really cool things with it. Uh, one of the things we can do is we can actually play back that sound. And it sounds, a, that, that brainwave, and it sounds a lot like the sound that evoked it. Uh, we can also look at the encoding of discrete sound features. So how the pitch was encoded, how the harmonics were encoded, uh, if the timing is the same as the timing of the, resp- of the stimulus. So that way we can really start to see how distinct features are encoded and how that might those different features might be impacted by different life experiences. That's fascinating and very important work and very interesting way to collect that data. Um, so you mentioned, so participants are wearing kind of like a small cap or something? It's just three electrodes. Yeah, so it's three electrodes that we just apply to one on their ear, one on their forehead, and one right on the top of their head. Interesting. So then tell us about your research participants. In general, what age ranges do you typically recruit for your studies, and what languages do you look at or language pairs? We have tested kids as young as three months, all the way up to adults 90 years of age. Uh, this is 
the great thing about the FFR is that it's one of these measures that you can use the exact same protocol on anyone across the lifespan and anyone from different language backgrounds. So uh, I've particularly worked with children through middle-aged adults, and um, I've worked with English monolinguals, Spanish-English bilinguals, and Chinese-Mandarin English bilinguals. Great. Um, well, going into your research study, um, can you tell us about some of the recent work that you've done that you're currently working on, um, things that you're studying currently? Mm -hmm. So my early work into bilingualism was looking at uh, bilingualism as a source of enrichment, of auditory enrichment, and to see how being bilingual might confer advantages for real-world listening, um, whether it be, you know, speech and noise or uh, just trying to be able to focus on a target talker and ignore distractors. Uh, and I found some really awesome advantages of being a bilingual, uh, which, um, you know, have to do with, you know, being able to better perceive the pitch of a sound. So being able to follow a ta target talker in noise a lot easier and having better inhibitory control. So being able to ignore distracting information and fo focus on a, on um, your target. Um, and I've also found that if we look at um, bilingualism across uh, stratified across socioeconomic st strata, that we can see that being a bilingual can offset some of the effects of linguistic impoverishment associated with being low SES. Uh, so it seems like being a bilingual has really great advantages. Um, since then, I've kind of moved a little bit more into looking at uh, um, accented speech recognition. So moving from being uh, bilingualism as, you know, how does the auditory brain get shaped by being a bilingual, but how do people understand a bilingual talker? And so I've been looking at that in uh, English monolinguals with normal hearing and with hearing loss uh, to look at whether or not the auditory mechanisms that a listener will engage to understand speech and noise and accented speech changes depending on their hearing profile. And I think it's incredibly important because, you know, more than half of the bilingual or half of the English speakers in the world are speaking it as a second language. And so uh, it's really important to understand how it is that people, especially native speakers will understand an accented talker and what we can do to improve that just so we can try to improve communication in this ever globalized world. Yeah, as you mentioned, more and more globalization leads to people traveling and people having access to all kinds of individuals who speak a variety of languages. So you spoke about monolingual individuals and how they process, how they hear accented input. Are there any individual differences that you found in your work that seem to either help or hinder listening to accented speakers? So the, the listeners, as they're listening to that non-native input, are there any individual factors that could either improve that or maybe that hinder that listening process? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of, the, one of the other groups that we often study in our lab is musicians. And we found that musicians have a whole host of, of benefits um, to being a musician. And uh, there is some evidence that shows that musicians are better at picking up on accents than non-musicians. And then certainly we know that hearing loss plays a big role in being able to understand accented talkers as well. Uh, and 
you know, it's it's easy to think that sure speech and noise would be affected by hearing loss, but yeah, the the idea that having hearing loss can alter the way that your ability to understand an accent to talker, I think, is is something new that we're showing. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your thoughts, why do you think, or what what makes non-native input difficult to understand for monolingual speakers? Do you have any hypotheses, any evidence from the work that you've done? Yeah. So what we're looking at is if you have this, you know. I like to use the where, where's Waldo analogy. So when most, almost everything that we do, we're having to listen to speech and noise. And so we're constantly having to do this auditory version of where's Waldo. And so now you've spent your entire life thinking that Waldo is going to have a red and white shirt. But now let's say that Waldo's shirt color changes slightly to cream and beige. And now you have to adjust to that being the the new Waldo. And so the accent to talk, speakers are it's the kind of the same way that you have to learn the the different phoneme categorizations that they have. So the ways that they're distinguishing their speech sounds are going to be different than someone who's a native talker. And so you have to be able to have that flexibility as a listener to adjust to those new boundaries and to be able to adapt your listening to identify those new boundaries. Mm-hmm. Have you done any work with how bilinguals um, are able to listen to accent and input? We know, at least um, in my experience with children, we know that children prefer native speakers, even bilingual children. Have you done any work with bilingual listeners listening to non-native input? I have that going on right now. (laughs) We're collecting the data, actually, um, as we speak. And so what I'm looking at is... um, So English monolinguals, Spanish English bilinguals, and the Chinese Mandarin bilinguals. Uh, I'm looking at both uh, from the talker perspective and the listener perspective. So if you are a Spanish English bilingual listener, how do you do if you're uh, um, speaking with someone who is a Spanish English bilingual and you're speaking in your second language of English? And... Um, so that research is really going on right now, and I'm really, I'm really excited to see what, what comes out of it. But we're really playing to look at just you know, the auditory mechanisms through FFR and also looking at some cognitive and linguistic mechanisms to see how those might all work together uh, with your language background experience to influence how you understand accent and speech. So exciting. What age ranges are you looking at currently with that study? Middle-aged adults. Okay. Yeah, and my reason for wanting to look at middle-aged is because it's so understudied. Mm-hmm. There's really not much that we know about middle-aged, but yet it's super crucial because middle-aged is, the majority of our workforce is middle-aged, and middle-aged is when you start to notice that there's some kind of subtle changes to your hearing that you can't hear as well in noise or you have to ask people what more often and to repeat themselves more often and so I really wanted to just try and get a sense on what's happening in that middle-aged group. Absolutely. I mean, so many good implications from that work. You mentioned some cognitive and linguistic factors that you're looking Mm -hmm. at. What kind of factors are you looking at um, in that work? Yeah, so uh A lot of our work uh, focuses on speech and noise recognition. And so I'm kind of the first one in our group that's started to move into this accented speech direction. And so we have a lot of knowledge about how speech and noise um, 
is supported by certain auditory mechanisms together with certain cognitive and linguistic mechanisms. And so I'm trying to see whether or not there's that same bridging of auditory, cognitive, linguistic with accented speech. And so I cast a little bit of a wide net for my cognitive and linguistic measures. Uh, certainly I'm looking at just their language proficiency, so their English proficiency, uh, their English exposure. So we can look at things like, uh, does that relate to their ability to use something like context in the sentences? If, if you know, you're able to pick up on the gist of a sentence, even if you can't pick up on all those exact words, then uh, that's likely going to be tied to just their exposure and their proficiency in a language. And then just some domain general language measures, kind of like your phon phonological awareness and uh, you know, uh, uh, language-based auditory working memory. Uh, so that way we can start to see, are there some processes that uh, you can call on? They're not solely dependent on English to be able to, to do these tasks. Great. I'm looking forward to those findings. I myself um, did some work with learning from accented input. So I was looking at children and looking at, well, how well can you learn if you, the linguistic input um, is accented, and I was looking at four and five-year-olds. So I was looking at those really young kids, and I was looking at monolingual and Spanish-English bilinguals, and how well can they learn from a monolingual speaker, from a Spanish-accented um, English speaker, and a Korean-accented English speaker. And the general findings were that as the phonology of the accent became more and more distant from English. It became more difficult for children to learn. But like you said, there's individual differences in terms of uh, proficiency, in terms of how intact the cognitive system is. So very kind of similar, but, but yeah, different ways to look at it. So I'm really excited to see your results in middle-age individuals and how they process um, that non-native input. So we talked about, you know, how exposure to non-native input can impact your listening, and then with my work, how can it impact that learning? Um, what sparked your interest to kind of move towards that non-native input, and kind of, kind of, how do individuals process that non-native input? Yeah. So. It all actually kind of started, my original interest in bilingualism started because of the fact that in our lab we did a lot of music work, looking at music as a form of enrichment, uh, but we also did work uh, in kids in at-risk communities and, you know, music wasn't always accessible, but a lot of the children were bilingual. and. I wanted to see whether or not that could be a strength for them rather than a hindrance. Because a lot of times I think that there can be a negative stigma surrounding bilingualism, especially when you're coming into a school setting and you might be more proficient in a language other than English when you're first starting to, to learn in kindergarten or first grade. And so then uh, trying to change the way that we think about a child who comes in from a bilingual family as being a strength and not a weakness. And so then that was part of the goals of my work was to explore whether or not that really was the case. And then thinking about working into why look at non-native speech recognition, uh, well, part of it was just the idea that accents can be hard for some people to understand. And I think that that could be a deterrent then to uh, to communication, where what I really want to do is be able to bridge communication from across different groups and among different uh, backgrounds. And 
I think if we're all able to understand each other better or know what we need to do to be able to listen to someone better, then I think that we can help to bridge communication. Very real-world implications based on on your work. Um, You talked a little bit about advantages um, in in terms of being bilingual, and we know there's also some disadvantages when you're bilingual and listening to either non-native input or, or, you know, listening to speech and noise. Can you talk um, a little bit more about your work and kind of those advantages versus disadvantages of being bilingual when you're listening to, and I think you said most of your work um, in in that area was looking at noise and looking at speech and noise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, we were looking at bilinguals and we found that they have this enhanced representation of pitch. They have stronger pitch encoding, which is really important for being able to lock on to the target talker and noise. And uh, so it helps, it's it's one of the most important cues that we have for speech and noise perception. And then we also found these inhibitory control advantages that they're able to you know filter out this distracting information and focus on something. So these two pieces together make you think, okay, well then they should be better at speech and noise. But we know from the existing literature that they're not. And I think there's a very good reason for this and that you know they just have less time in the language and so then they have less ability to benefit from context. But what it does is that it leads to a, their brain being trained and um, you know, really having to to struggle a little bit to be able to understand speech and noise leads to a greater brain training. It's be- a better exercise for your brain than if you're able to just you know shortcut and pick up on some context cues. Uh, and so, one of the things that we see is that. Uh, While the inhibitory control can be a little bit more equivocal, I think that some people would say that there are no effects, but we've certainly found them. Uh, We've repeatedly, and other labs have also repeatedly found this enhancement for this um, pitch encoding, and that it seems to last across the lifespan. And we think this extra training that your brain is going through every time you're having to listen to speech and noise and every time you're just trying to you know, juggle these two languages in one brain while trying to understand speech in a noisy environment, that uh, that exercise is one of the reasons why we can see in older adults that with Alzheimer's that if you're a bilingual who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you have deteriorated much farther than someone who has um, who's a monolingual with Alzheimer's. So it takes that much longer for the bilingual brain to deteriorate and reach a point that symptoms are present. So the, the level of symptoms that are present are equated between the two groups, but the level of deterioration is more significant for the bilingual group, saying that they've been able to compensate for so much longer to be able to overcome some of the adverse effects of Alzheimer's disease. And do you find these results that are the same for bilinguals who are simultaneous, who learn both of their languages around the same time, um, versus bilinguals who are sequential, who have one language from birth and then another language later on in life? Do you find the results are pretty similar, or does it vary based on the acquisition history? We find that it does vary based off of when they acquired their second language. Uh, We did find that for the kids up to about age five, if they've acquired both languages, that we see this advantage. Um, We are extending that now to see how 
much farther into development. We can go for a second language acquisition to see if it uh, will extend into older adults. But certainly, if you're um, simultaneous or an early acquiring bilingual, we see these advantages. And I've also read some work in terms of individuals who code switch often and individuals who don't code switch. Um, can you talk a little bit about that bilingual experience in terms of what is it that a bilingual does that may enhance those advantages versus mm -hmm. may not have much of an effect? Yeah. So uh, the idea is just uh, the you know, bilingual is a mental juggler of two languages, that they can never ever have one language fully inactive. And um, this is work that uh, Dr. Viorica Marion had done in her graduate or postgraduate uh, or postdoctoral work, I believe, uh, showing that even if you only do a task in one language, your second language is still active in, in the background. So that means it needs to be suppressed and needs to be handled. And uh, so there's this constant juggling that's happening uh, for a bilingual that I think is um, leading to differences in how the bilingual brain is, uh, how they use it and how compared to how monolinguals will use it and just in terms of how it then gets shaped up. Yeah, so there's many variables that go into play to these bilingual advantages versus disadvantages. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, you talked a little bit about um, your current study that you're mm -hmm. collecting with middle-aged adults and looking at how they process um, non-native input. Can you talk a little bit about some future work that you're planning to do and other variables that you're really excited to, to mm -hmm. study and other, other studies that you just can't wait, <laughs> can't wait to get started on? Sure. So... Uh, where I'd really like to take this next is to add in the dimension of listening effort. So I haven't looked at listening effort yet, but I think that it's going to actually be quite a critical factor in uh, whether people are going to find accent and speech recognition difficult or not. It will give us kind of that objective measure of, okay, this, this is difficult for this individual and now what is it about that that makes it difficult for them as opposed to being able to look at you know just right now looking at listening effort or I'm sorry looking at accented speech in general now we can really narrow it down to okay these were the trials where they really struggled now we can look at what it is specifically that led, that led to that struggle. That's really interesting and it has a lot of you know real world implications in terms of how do you how do you hear that accented input, and how can you learn from that accented input? So, so what is it? What makes it so difficult? Is it the strength of of the accent of mm -hmm. the speaker, and that's also you know very relative. Mm -hmm. You know how you perceive accent is very relative. So how do you plan to measure that mm -hmm. listening effort in individuals? So uh, it's going to be with pupillometry. So we'll do pupillometry recordings while they're doing the accented speech study. And so the um, accented speech sentences, the st stimuli that we have, we got from Ann Bradlow, who's a collaborator of ours over in linguistics. And so what she's done in her lab is they've had people from very diverse backgrounds and language experiences come in and record a whole list of sentences in English and then also in their native language. And so that way we have all these different samples that we can choose from to, uh, and a lot of them have been normed by her group to see whether or not they're somebody who 
people find more challenging to understand or find easier to understand. And so we've gotten a range of those different people that we can then put in. Uh, but you know, now we'll have a way of saying objectively that, okay, your pupils, your, your pupils don't lie. They're telling us that you're having a hard time. That's great. Um, so you're going to be using how dilated mm-hmm. they, their pupils are based on what stimuli you're presenting. Yes. That's so exciting. I'm looking forward to, to those results yeah. as well. Um, let's see. Um, so in terms of the research that you're doing, if you had to summarize, you know, uh, provide a list for us in terms of everything that you've done so far. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you create that list in terms of you know, he, these are these are the most pertinent findings that have real world implications? What would you say to someone mm-hmm. um, asking you that question in terms mm-hmm. of what are the real world implications? And then um, obviously you, you're preparing new studies based on on those findings. Yeah. So, you know. I've, I've talked a lot today about our bilingual work, but we have work in children with dyslexia, uh, ch- uh, children with autism spectrum disorder, um, musicians. So we've looked at all these different groups. And I think the one thing that we can say is that uh, the FFR is, is sensitive to each of those. So there's something distinct in somebody's auditory processing depending on how, what their life experience is. And so, what I'm hoping to be able to do is to be able to characterize individuals by, based off of their FFRs. And I, it has applications, I think, for something like being able to dissociate a language delay from a language disorder. So if we can just record somebody's brain response to sound and say, okay, I know why they're struggling with learning languages right now, then we're gonna be able to help them and get them into targeted interventions more quickly. And so the long-term goal of all of this work is really to be able to just look at a single individual's FFR and say, okay, I know I know what you're really good at, what you struggle with, and I know how to help you. So getting an index of looking at that FFR and getting an index of, well, this is what I think, mm-hmm. why you're having a difficult time processing this information. You mentioned um, looking at autistic individuals mm-hmm. and individuals with dyslexia. Can you share more about those results? I'm really interested in, in what you found. Sure. So uh, with our with our FFR, one of the things that we do is, you know, it's a, it's a very small response. So we're going to play this sound a couple of thousand times. And typically what we'll do is average all those responses together. But what we can also do is we can also look at how consistent the brain responds from one sound to the next. And that measure of consistency tells us about just how stable the brain is and how well it can represent different sounds. It, it Think about it as kind of like categorical perception. So your, your ability to create these boundaries between different word sounds is going to be influenced by how stable you are in responding to each of these sounds. And so what we found is that children with dyslexia, they have more inconsistent responses, which I think makes sense uh, just because we know that they have a little bit of harder time with something like phonological awareness. And so if you are having a hard time hearing what those boundaries are, you're going to have a hard time being able to recognize or recreate those boundaries. Um, for Uh, children with autism, what we see is that they have reduced encoding of the pitch. And I think this also makes sense as well because pitch is is our emotional 
cue. And so it's what's going to distinguish whether or not what you're saying is happy or mad or sad. And if you're not able to pick up on that cue, then you're going to have a hard time responding to it. Absolutely in agreement with that. Um, for your study with autistic individuals, um, have you studied monolingual individuals or have you also included bilinguals? We do know there's some advantages of being bilingual in terms of pragmatic skills. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if being bilingual can serve sort of a protective factor for, for those individuals. Yeah, so all of our initial studies were looking at English monolinguals, and we have a much larger study that we're doing in, collab in collaboration with uh, Molly Losh over at Northwestern. And um, I do believe that they're going to have bilingualism as a factor that they're at least tracking. So we, we should be able to look at that down the road. I'm very interested in that question. That, that is, I'm very interested. It's always hard to recruit. Um, individuals, special populations mm -hmm. who are also bilingual because a lot of times those parents are told, oh, maybe just stick to one language. So it, it can be really difficult. And we know bilingualism mm -hmm. is very heterogeneous. So mm -hmm. There's so many variables that we have to take yeah. care of. Yeah. yeah. My, my husband, he was born premature and the doctors told his parents, oh, you can only speak to him in English. If you speak to him in any other language, he might not ever learn language. So it can only be English. Wow. Well, hopefully we're able to, you know, get rid of those those myths yes. and with the studies like like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully we we can inform everyone a little bit better. Well, thank you for all the wonderful yeah. information that you have provided. I'm really looking forward to all of the findings, your future findings, and the things that you've planned that are currently in works as well that you've planned. And I can't wait to follow your work, and hopefully we can collaborate as well with, yes, with, our, definitely. with our interests. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for being here, and I hope you're enjoying your time at NIU. And hopefully we can get you back soon so you can fill <laughs> us in uh, about all the results of your future studies. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Jennifer and Miliana. This has been Sizel Presents, a language and literacy podcast. Thank you for listening. Sizel Presents is brought to you by the Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Language and Literacy at Northern Illinois University. Music was performed by the NIU Steel Band, arranged by Yuko Asada.